Hello, Dr. Sorrentino. You are a professor at the National University of Singapore, where you run a lab under the Healthy Longevity Research Program. So uh, welcome to Modern Healthspan for our first in-person interview. Yeah. Hi, Richard. Thanks for, for inviting me. Uh, yeah, it's been a, it's a pleasure to be here and to do this in person with you. Yes, I mean, I, I lead a research lab in the NUS. It's about a year now. And uh, basically, we focus on my research is uh, focusing on the preclinical hallmarks of aging, including mostly NAD metabolism, mitochondria and, and protein aggregation in, uh, in, a, in the context of aging and disease. So. Dr. Sorrentino, you've had a kind of varied career. You started off in academia and then you went to Nestle and that now you've gone back to academia. So could you talk a little bit about your path, uh, how you got into, how you ended up at Singapore right. at the NUS? Right. So uh, pretty much, I mean, my interest has always been uh, not just understanding the mechanisms of aging and disease, right? I mean, and as a molecular biologist, I've always been training on understanding the mechanisms uh, using in vitro models, preclinical models. However, uh, basically after my postdoc, which I was, uh, which I did at EPFL in Switzerland under uh, the, in the OVEX lab, I was interested uh, in uh, understanding more and more how uh, things that we were studying in the context of aging and neurodegeneration. So the link, for instance, between mitochondria and aging or mitochondria and neurodegeneration or NAD metabolism and neurodegeneration, how that, given the, the research I'd done in EPFL that had led to interesting findings, how could that make a real impact and reach a natural translation? And so for this, I got the opportunity and the interest to connect uh, with Nestle Research at the time, which is also based in Switzerland, and who granted me the opportunity to lead a research team more on the bridging between preclinical and clinical uh, research. So where we were really kind of designing our preclinical studies in order to make sure that we would be able to translate something into uh, clinical trials. And that's what I was really what drove me to uh, kind of enter the, the uh, let's say, corporate space in order to really make an impact as soon as possible and understanding translational science. But then from there, what I learned and what I acquired in terms of bridging a little bit preclinical and clinical research, I wanted to bring back to academia and to in the context of healthy longevity, uh, by essentially uh, leveraging the ideas that I still want to work on, but now with a bit of understanding of also how to connect with the clinical scientists. And in Singapore, there is the perfect setup for this. So I got in touch with Professor Kennedy uh, about two, three years ago, when he was essentially already launching the, uh, um, the LT Longevity Translation Research Program in Singapore, which has exactly this concept. So the idea is to bridge preclinical and clinical scientists with the idea to as as I say, precisely and as quickly as possible, bring, uh, let's say, new science or I'll say better understanding of ongoing um, um, interventions that are almost at the clinical stage into the clinical space as well, while also understanding how these molecules actually work or these interventions actually work. And that's why this was the perfect setting for me to, to join NUS. Right. So can you talk a little bit more about so you said you discussed with the clinicians about what was you know how to make uh, your research the most relevant. So what are the kind of parameters that matter right. to them? How, how do you how do you do that? Yeah. So essentially, uh, um, what I learned from this experience is really that um, essentially there has to be a continuous crosstalk between the two, let's say, uh, uh, specialties, so between clinical scientists and clinical scientists. 
in a matter to in order to essentially be able to design preclinical studies which are still meaningful from the scientific point of view so allow you to do characterization validation of your um, uh, pathway of interest of your drug of interest but by reading uh, by choosing the I say the model that is the closest in terms of possible uh, translational readouts that can be actually read in a clinical context to give you an example for instance uh, maybe before when I was not, let's say, thinking about this too much and I was just focusing on the pure preclinical understanding of things, I would, for instance, uh, just focus on understanding how a molecule would work, for instance, in a cell line in vitro in terms of impacting, I don't know, mitochondrial function or how it would extend lifespan in a nematode or I would restore, let's say, uh, cognitive function in a mouse. But without actually thinking of which biomarkers or which, let's say, uh, tissues would be worth or accessible in a human clinical trial, right? So mm -hmm. because not everything that we study from a mechanistic point of view can actually be mm -hmm. understood in humans later. So in humans, we need uh, different, uh, let's say, readouts, different tests. And also, most of the time, we only have access to blood in which we or urine where we can read actually uh, the effect of interventions rather than tissues like in mice. So this is something that I learned. And now when we discuss with clinical scientists, we try to tailor our preclinical studies in a way that we can uh, get results that can actually very quickly look also into humans. For instance, reading something in blood or urine rather than uh, taking liver biopsies or muscle biopsies, which are not always easily accessible. Correct. I can, I can understand that. So in, in terms of the translation, right, I guess within the... Uh, Within the industry, there you you have supplements, and then we have like FDA-approved drugs, and they're kind of at opposite ends. Uh, do you s when you're looking at an intervention, where would you see it fitting within these two areas? So, if we're talking in terms of things that could be, let's say, translatable or reach a clinical, let's say, impact in the, let's say, not so long term, mm. of course, the idea. I mean, what what's becoming very prominent now and very relevant is the repurposing of already drugs that are on, approved by the FDA to avoid this tedious procedure anyways. And also because some of these drugs that are now currently already in the pipeline for, for let's say, even longevity trials have been already also from a preclinical standpoint characterized in terms of mechanisms. So these are very good examples of things that for which we understand enough from the preclinical standpoint that we have enough evidence from the preclinical standpoint in terms of mechanism and benefits and that are already being used in humans for for instance other type of conditions but now we have the understanding that actually the pathways that have been tackled in disease for some of these drugs actually could impact longevity as well mm. and so we can actually just repurpose these drugs to more quickly and efficiently uh, reach clinical efficacy on the other end of course, if you have, let's say, natural molecules, which can reach, uh, let's say, that not need to go the drug uh, path, mm. regulatory path, and they can just receive, for instance, a grass status without needing to go for the FDA approval, that would be another way to accelerate clinical translation. Of course, there are, if they are completely new molecules, they still need to be understood mm. from, a, from a mechanistic understanding because you want to be as precise as possible in understanding what benefits they could bring. So the best, what I see is essentially starting to look at either, yeah, repurposing of molecules that are known for now longevity rather than disease, or starting thinking of combinations of molecules where, for instance, we have drugs which are known and we can repurpose them, but now adding or combining them with either other drugs or supplements for which we can 
uh, get synergistic benefits or at least reduce the negative effects that you could get, for instance, for some, some certain drug uh, treatments. So one last question is, uh, so do you see uh, Singapore like thinking about this in terms of the, uh, I guess, the approval process that they are running for, for drugs? Um, right. Because they are, in, in general, the way that they're viewing aging is very advanced. I mean. Right. Yeah. yeah, so so Singapore, yeah, so in that sense, Singapore has uh, put up a sort of precise frame with a precise goal to actually improve. So the, the Center for Healthy Longevity, which is part of the Healthy Longevity uh, Translational Program, has a precise mission. Essentially, they have already uh, opened and approved a series of clinical trials for the uh, understanding of how certain approved interventions from the FDA or supplement perspective could ameliorate some of the uh, uh, biomarkers or readouts of longevity and they want to do that with the hope that they can extend at least a healthy lifespan of five years already mm. uh, in, in uh, Singapore in the next essentially uh, years to come so the idea is really to get something that could guarantee an extension of five years of healthy lifespan pretty much with the next uh, clinical trials that, uh, that, will, uh, that will read out I think in the next two to three years so right. there is an initiative for this, and that's more on the yeah short to midterm uh, vision. Mm -hmm. And then of course there is the integration with the preclinical space, where we also suggest every time through our research either new geroprotectors or combinations of geroprotectors or repurposing of drugs, which then could be proposed to the clinicians in order to feed this clinical pipeline and get essentially something, uh, let's say that could either generate new. Uh, clinical evidence or uh, improve previous trials and so substantiate what we already know so that mm. to go to the point of clinical efficacy. Right. I mean, that would be, it would be really good if um, other countries could follow in Singapore's footsteps. I, I hadn't heard about this, like this uh, concrete target of five years extra healthy life and that that's just brilliant. To, uh, so getting more specific, so NAD decline Right. Right. is known as a marker of health, uh, of aging, right? In, in general, NAD goes down and we can replace lost NAD with precursors. Right. So I believe you have been looking at like a, a novel molecule, which may work as a precursor. You've just kind of started looking at it called uh, trigonaline. Right. Could you introduce trigonaline? Where, where does it work? Where does it come from in the body? What kind of chemical is it? Right. Yeah. So in the context of my research, so this is something that I was that uh, came up essentially during our uh, research in uh, when I was leading a research group in SLA research. So it turned out that when we were looking at muscle aging in a, in a human individuals, actually, including cohorts from UK, from Jamaica and even from Singapore. Mm. Uh, and, we, and in particular, we looked at the difference between uh, muscle, healthy muscle aging and sarcopenic muscle aging. What popped out is that when we look at the systemic changes in the body, there was a particular metabolite, and this is trigonelline, which was declining uh, in sarcopenic patients and actually correlated positively with the hallmarks of muscle health, which are grip strength, appendicular lean mass, and uh, gait speed. So mm -hmm. that's how we essentially got to, um, to start looking into trigonelline. So we didn't start, uh, interesting thing is that we didn't start with the idea that it would be necessarily an NAD booster, mm -hmm. but we started with the clinical funding, a finding that it was declining in, a, in, a, in the context of muscle aging. And that's why we started to look at the molecule. 
And when we looked at the structure of the molecule, it turns out that it's a very simple molecule. It's an alkaloid, which is basically uh, looks like a, nico a nicotinic acid or niacin. So that mm -hmm. is a known NAD precursor, but with a methyl group on the basically on the um, pyridine ring where the nitrogen is. And essentially, it turns out that this molecule is called trigonellin uh, because basically it's mostly produced by certain plants like uh, Trigonella um, mm. uh, fenugreek, which is essentially a sort of clover-like plant. So it's really found in uh, in high quantities in this type of plants, in the seeds of these plants. And it turns out that it's also produced by many other plants. So mm. normally in nature, it's, I would say, mostly considered a plant metabolite. It's also found, for instance, in uh, coffee, green coffee beans. And uh, even when you drink coffee, actually, you, you do get a <laughs> spike of trigonellin in plasma. It's been used in a study uh, in Norway for as a biomarkers of coffee consumption because it's a very stable molecule. So depending on how much coffee you drink, you will get essentially uh, <laughs> a, a linear increase of trigonellin up to a point. And essentially, yeah, what we discovered being a methylated form of nicotinic acid and being linked to NAD metabolism, at least in plants, in the plant cycle of, for instance, seed germination, um, uh, essentially uh, maturation of the plant, uh, we thought like, okay, it has never been really linked to NAD metabolism in humans, but we have seen that this sort of declines in the context of muscle aging and sarcopenia. So could it be, given the fact that NAD declines in these patients as well, in the, in the muscles, we did see that NAD was significantly down we thought like whether there could be a link between trigonellin right. and NAD. And that's how we started our studies. And it turned out that indeed yeah. trigonellin can work as an NAD precursor also in uh, mammalians and in humans. Right. So does it, so it raises NAD, uh, but you said it's very stable. Right. Right. So how did, uh, but if it's, okay. So it's stable in serum. Yeah. And then, uh, Oh, so what path does it raise NAD through? Because it's, it's like nicotinic acid? Right. So, yeah, so basically being a methylated form of nicotinic acid, what we hypothesized and we validated is that uh, essentially can be converted through the methylation into nicotinic acid and then basically get converted into NAD through the classic nicotinic acid pathway, which is called the Price-Sandler pathway. Right. And in this case, essentially most cells in our bodies and in particular tissues like liver, kidney, and to some extent, also muscle cells, at least uh, when we work with our mm. models and even animal models like C. elegans, they make use of this pathway to convert essential nicotinic acid all the way into NAD. So with trigonellin, we just mm. need the demethylation step for which we know that it happens. We do not know which enzyme is doing it in mammals yet, but we right. know that it happens because we have done a metabolomics showing that you get an increase in nicotinic acid when you use trigonellin, and then you get an increase in all the downstream metabolites of the press and the pathway. Is it, do you think the microbiome, is this in vivo or in vitro? We have done, we have done everything. So we have done in vitro and in vivo, including both the elegans and rodents. So in vitro, you know, we are talking about uh, 2D cell culture. So in particular, primary muscle cells uh, because of the link with the sarcopenia muscle aging. So there is absence of, uh, of course, in this case of gut microbiome. What we see is that already just by supplementing or adding trigonellin in the cell culture media, the cells will be able to respond to it and to increase NAD levels. That's why it means that there is certainly a local effect of different right. cell types. 
uh, we have done the in vivo in C elegance, which has uh, different tissues in a way, although simplified uh, version compared to, to mammalians. But we yeah. do see that when we look at the total uh, body NAD uh, in, uh, in uh, worms, they also respond to trigonelin by increasing NAD, and that this is again dependent on the requirement of the price standard pathway. So if you block this pathway in muscle cells, or in uh, C. elegans, you basically lose the NAD boosting properties of trigonelin. Right. And then we have done it in mice, either acutely or chronically. So either for like two hours and then look at the NAD metabolome in different tissues or chronically in aged mice and then looking essentially at the NAD levels again in different tissues. So we cannot exclude in the mice, of course, a component of the gut microbiome. However, we do detect trigonelin in every single tissue we have analyzed, and we do detect NAD increases in, in as short as two hours, which could still imply a certain effect of the gut microbiome, but certainly we do think that it happens also locally in the tissues based also on our uh, in vitro data with, uh, with muscle cells. And in the chronic, certainly, I think that's where things would be more interesting because with a chronic intervention of like two, three months or longer, which we could foresee, for instance, in humans, there would certainly be implications also uh, coming from the gut microbiome. And there is also evidence that uh, when people in some certain studies where people have looked at the fecal microbiome from people with diabetes or athletes, some of the metabolites that were changing were part of the NAD metabolome, including trigonelin. And in these studies, they associated trigonelin as part of the fecal microbiome uh, metabolome. So, in, mm. But there is no precise evidence on which bacteria would then either methylate or demethylate trigonelin into nicotinic acid or from nicotinic acid. So this is something that would require further studies in the future. Yeah. Okay. So niacin, if you take it, nicotinic acid, yeah. uh, can have uh, side effects like flushing. Yeah. Do we have any reason to, e to expect that trigonelin would be like that? Uh, not with our in vitro. So we have in vitro evidence of trigonelin. We have done head-to-head -head testing mm -hmm. of niacin and uh, trigonelin in, a, in, a, in, a, in a cellular assays where you can actually measure the activation of the uh, GPCR, so the receptor that activates essentially the uh, release of prostaglandins in the, in the skin or in other tissues, mm -hmm. and that causes this flushing and, pain and sort of irritation or unpleasant feeling. So with with, while niacin indeed confirmed these findings, trigonelin did, uh, did not activate the receptor, meaning that there is indeed uh, good I say, uh, hope that in humans or in the context of preclinical clinical studies, we will not undergo this uh, side effect. Right. And although it's very close to nicotinamide, it doesn't raise nicotinamide in the no. same way that like the others, NR and NMN right. do. Right. In our studies, so we have, yeah, we have looked at the wall uh, NAD metabolome, so we we never saw actually NAM essentially increases in NAM compared to, for instance, what NR does. But we do see, for instance, a crosstalk between, especially in the acute uh, um, uh, supplementation of trigonelin in rodents, we do see a crosstalk between the different NAD pathways, which has been again reported also by Brenner with NR, for instance. So we do see that by treating uh, animals with trigonelin acutely, you do get also increases in blood, for instance, of things like NR on NNM meaning that there is, at the systemic level, there is, a, especially acutely, there is a crosstalk which is of undefined, yet undefined mechanism that interconverts these metabolites uh, into each other. And depending on which tissue needs, prefers to use, I think they mm. get then used uh, from the circulation into the different tissues. But we don't see nicotinamide though for trigonelin, that's true.